Father in heaven, thank you for bringing us safely together today. We thank you for the peace that we can still experience and to worship in. I pray that you will guide us into all truth today. Speak to us. Teach us something from your word and help us to be more like you at the conclusion. We ask and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The title of our message this morning is Daniel, the Greatly Beloved. So when I ask you, what comes to mind when you think about the Bible character Daniel? What comes to your mind's eye? Dare to be a Daniel? Dare to stand alone? Right? We think about the lion's den. We think about being faithful. We think about being courageous. Right? These are all of the things we think about when we think about Daniel. We might even think about the fiery furnace, even though he wasn't there. It's still in chapter 3 of the book of Daniel. But what about, if I ask you the question, what does God think about Daniel? What do you think? Do you have any, any words that come to mind? Well, we don't have to guess because the Bible actually tells us straight up what God thinks about Daniel. To be more specific, is we're told what the angel Gabriel things about Daniel, but Gabriel being the messenger from God, I assume they're on the same page. So let's begin in the book of Daniel in chapter 9, asking this question, what does God think about Daniel? Daniel chapter 9, and we will read verse 23. Daniel chapter 9, verse 23, and Daniel is praying, you remember the prayer of Daniel, and angel Gabriel is sent to respond. Verse 23 says, at the beginning of thy supplications, the commandment came forth, and I am come to show thee, this is Gabriel speaking, for thou art, what are the next two words? Greatly beloved, therefore understand the matter and consider the vision. Oh, okay, so Daniel is acknowledged by the angel Gabriel as being someone greatly beloved, okay? What else does he say? Let's continue in verse, or chapter 10 and verse 11. And he, this is angel Gabriel again, and he said unto me, O Daniel, a man, there it is again, greatly beloved, understand the words that I speak unto thee. Hmm, we're, he, we're seeing a pattern coming up here. Let's skip down to verse 19 again. And said, O man, greatly beloved, fear not, peace be unto thee, be strong, yea, be strong. So what does God think about Daniel? Daniel was greatly beloved. Isn't that what we would like God to say about us? If our name comes up in the judgment, I just want to think that God has a smile on his face and he says, that is my beloved son, or that is my beloved daughter. And speaking of which, what other Bible character do you remember in Scripture where God said exactly that? This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Who was that? Jesus. So, so is it fair to say that Daniel must have some Christ-like characteristics? At least God reveals in his interactions and these terms of endearment that he considers Daniel to be a beloved child of his. Now, actually, that's not the main point of the sermon, even though I think there's a lot, of, uh, a lot more we can mine from that. But the point is this. Jesus, he grew in favor with God and man. Jesus was beloved by God and man. 
Daniel, my contention is, likewise, was beloved by God and beloved by his fellow men. That's actually going to be the balance of our sermon. We're going to get there in just a moment, but I still need to set the stage with one more point. Okay, let's go to Revelation chapter 18. We're going to come back to Daniel, but Revelation chapter 18, we're going to read a few verses here as we lay the, the groundwork for what we're trying to accomplish in this message this morning. So Revelation chapter 18, we're going to begin reading in verse 1. This is often referred to as the fourth angel that comes down from heaven after the three angels' message. It adds its voice to the final warning that the three angels give in Revelation 14. What does this angel say? And after these things, I saw another angel come down from heaven, having great power, and the earth was lightened with his glory. And he cried mightily with a strong voice, saying, Babylon, the great, is fallen, is fallen, and has become the habitation of devils and the hold of every foul spirit and a cage of every unclean and hateful bird. Let's skip down to verse 14. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, that ye be not partakers of her sins, and that ye receive not of her plagues. So at the very closing scenes of earth's history, there is an angel that is lightening the earth with his glory with a very specific message. Babylon has fallen, and God's people who are in Babylon come out of her. What Bible character do you know of lived in Babylon, was not tarnished by Babylon, gave a prophetic message that Babylon has fallen and were saving people out of Babylon. Daniel was. So here's the point. We're putting these two thoughts together. Is it possible that Daniel being greatly beloved has something to do with his capacity to give the warning message, the judgment message that Babylon has fallen, as well as being successful in saving souls out of Babylon? That's my thesis for the day, is that yes, indeed. The point I'm trying to make is that, yes, the final message is going to go out, but I believe we as Adventists, we've become very good at defining, articulating, defending what the message is, but we also have to consider the quality of the messenger the one who actually delivers that message. And the point is, I believe Daniel is an illustration to us of how to marry both of these things. We know that Daniel was an incredibly intelligent person. He was taken as a slave, marched across the desert. He was made into a eunuch, conscripted into the king's service. He went through the University of Babylon for three years. And at the end of it, he was 10 times wiser than all the wise men. Meaning at the end of three years of university, he was 10 times smarter, had 10 times more papers written, had 10 more degrees, whatever you want to say, more than his own teachers. Daniel, did he have a high IQ, you think? <laughs> but you know what's more important? Daniel had EQ. You do all the research, effective leaders, effective influencers, they may not be the A-plus students, but they were A-plus in people skills relationships, and emotional intelligence. And this is really what my point is today. Daniel shows us an example of completeness of Christian character, of not only knowing the Bible, but knowing how to communicate it to people and how to win people. So this is what we're going to do for the 
our time together. We're going to do a speed run through the first six chapters of Daniel. We're going to skip chapter three because Daniel's not featured there. But the, the historical section, the historical narrative section of Daniel, we're going to speed run through it, paying a special attention on Daniel's relationships, Daniel's interpersonal uh, you know, interactions with the Babylonians in his lives. And we're going to look at it while paying attention to the broader context in which these interactions took place. All right? You with me so far? So I'm guessing that most of us have heard these Bible stories before, and so I'm going to take the liberty of just flying over them really fast, assuming that you can fill in the blanks of the details. So let's let's go to Daniel chapter 1. All right, let's start there. Daniel chapter 1. What happens in Daniel chapter 1? Nebuchadnezzar the king comes to Jerusalem, raises the city to the ground, destroys the temple, massacres all the people, well, almost all the people, kills Daniel's parents. He takes the cream of the crop of the young people back to his kingdom, and he is going to assimilate them into his government. He wants to take the brightest, the best and the brightest from all of his conquered nations so that he can enhance his kingdom. Daniel is brought to the king's court, and Daniel was forced to become a eunuch, and Daniel was sent to the University of Babylon for three years. Now, it's important to notice what Nebuchadnezzar did not do. Nebuchadnezzar did not use force. He did not coerce. He did not beat these slaves into submission. He instead gave them privileges. He gave them free tuition to the best schools in the land. He gave them probably a nice dormitory to stay in, in which there might have been a free subscription to Netflix and Hulu and HBO Max. He allowed them to play the Babylonian games the Babylonian, with Babylonian friends, with Babylonian coaches. And of course, we know the story. They were served Babylonian food. What's the point? Nebuchadnezzar realized, I believe, taking a page out of the devil's playbook. If I'm going to make these Hebrews turn from faithfulness to their God, culture is more effective than coercion. Just like the frog in boiling water. We're all familiar with this illustration. The boiling water, you drop the frog in, it just hops right out. But you put the frog in cool water and you slowly crank up the heat and the frog is dead before he knows it. And we know that this strategy worked. How do I know that? Because we fast forward a couple chapters to Daniel chapter 3. The golden image is set up on the plain of Dura and everyone bows except three young men. Well, guess what? There were more than three Hebrews that were brought from Israel. Why did they bow? Because the cultural assimilation strategy worked. That's the point. And so we look at this and we say, wow, this, this, the devil is doing the same thing. Babylon changed their names. Nebuchadnezzar changed their friends, changed their environment, changed their diet, changed all of the things. The dates on the calendar had different names on it. The, worship, the day of worship, everything is different now, culturally speaking. And we know that they had to learn the language of the Chaldeans. And for those of us who are bilingual, we understand that learning another language is more than just learning vocabulary and, and, and syntax and adverbs and verbs. 
you have to understand the culture. Because communicating in a different language, you've got to know the reasoning, the history, the culture behind why certain things are said certain ways. And so Nebuchadnezzar was assimilating the him, uh, Daniel into Babylonian culture. And the devil is doing the same thing today. He was trying to undermine their, their worldview by indoctrinating them by osmosis. And we might be saying today, well, it's not exactly the same. But is it really? You might say, well, Daniel didn't have to have his friend, or, or Daniel had his name changed. Well, we, didn't, we don't need to have our names changed. But we're living in a day and age where we are told we can change our pronouns. And honestly, what's the difference? The point is an undermining of the biblical world view. Daniel's name and his friend's names were associated with the Hebrew God. And now we're being told, oh, you can pick things that God made you a certain way. And so we might be thinking to ourselves, or we might be in a, in a public setting where we claim to believe the biblical ideals of sexuality and gender, and what are we called? Homophobics, transphobic. We believe in creation, we might say, especially if it's a short age of the earth creation. Well, you're an anti-science purveyor of disinformation. That's what you are. Oh, well, we say we have to preach the gospel to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. Oh, you want to be a colonialist. I see. Oh, you're a Western imperialist. Okay, missions, all right. And then we begin to talk about things like the Sunday Law and the Mark of the Beast. And, well, we're just conspiracy theorists, nut jobs. What about when we talk about repentance and sanctification and judgment and the law of God? Well, then we're being discriminatory. We're bigots committing microaggressions. We might think we're in a sophisticated, enlightened, modern age, but the paganism is still with us. We are still, according to the Bible, we are still living in the age of Babylon. We are still given the message, come out of her, my people. And so Daniel and his friends, they were subjected to this immersion in Babylonian culture. But how did they respond? How did Daniel respond? What is our natural reaction? I think the natural reaction to this type of threat, generally it comes in two flavors. There's one which is the more passive approach and that is let's just withdraw, let's just isolate. We're gonna separate ourselves, we're gonna have our own life, our own community, our own compounds, our own activities. And we're just not going to interact with all those filthy heathens out there. But then there's another approach, and that is the tribal instinct. Us versus them. You came and you sacked my city. Well, I'm going to get you for that. And it might manifest itself in sharp words on social media. It might be through political activism. It might be through some form of aggression in some way. The fight or flight reaction. But is that how Daniel reacted? Did Daniel isolate himself? No, he didn't. Did Daniel fight? No, he didn't. What did he do? He came close to the people. He won their confidence, ministered to their needs, and he bade them follow Christ. Well, how do I know? Okay, let's take a look. Daniel chapter 1 and verse 9. Daniel chapter 1 and verse 9. 
Now God had brought Daniel into favor and what? Tender love with the prince of the eunuchs. Remember, the thesis of my message, Daniel was greatly beloved by God and greatly beloved by man. And here in the first chapter, by the ninth verse, as a slave in a foreign country, made into a eunuch, conscripted into the king's service, Daniel was nothing in this land. We're told that he was brought into favor and tender love of the prince of the eunuchs. Now, who was the prince of the eunuchs? He was a Babylonian. He was the prime agent that was commissioned by the king himself to convert these young men into Babylonians. He was the enemy. He was the guy who was born into the Babylonian culture. He's probably a hard-drinking man, swearing all the time, might have tattoos and piercings, and I don't know what kind. I don't know exactly what he was like, but he surely was not like Daniel. Whatever the most horrible boss you can ever think of, just insert him there, right? Imagine that person as the prince of the eunuchs who was in charge of Daniel, and Daniel was brought into tender love. He was greatly beloved by this Babylonian heathen. And you might be thinking now, I mean, let's not take this out of proportion. Daniel was just polite. He's just being a nice guy because he's a slave. What else is he going to do? Well, let's keep reading. Verse 10. And the prince of the eunuchs said unto Daniel, I fear my lord the king who hath appointed your meat and your drink. For why should he see your faces worse, liking than the children which are of your sort? Then shall ye make me endanger my head to the king. Then said Daniel to Melzar, whom the prince of the eunuchs has set over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Prove thy servants, I beseech thee, ten days, and let them give us pulse to eat and water to drink. Let's just skip down to verse 14. So he consented to them in this matter and proved them ten days. So Daniel came to the prince of the eunuchs who had no relationship with him, no common frame of reference, different worldview, different religion, different background, different culture, He was the one in power. Daniel was not a peer. He was a subservient. And somehow, Daniel got him to change his behavior. And you might be thinking now, all right, that's great. But notice this guy, the prince of the eunuchs, understood the risk involved in listening to the slave boy. You will endanger my head to the king. Daniel had... The gift of persuasion and his relationship with this man was deep enough that this person was willing to take that risk, not just the risk of his career and his job, but his head to give Daniel what he wanted. So when we say Daniel was greatly beloved by men, he really was. Because we can see it in the change in behavior in the people he interacted with. On the same theme, let's go quickly to Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2. Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. He can't remember the dream. He brings in the wise men. They can't interpret the dream. In a fit of rage, he says, kill them all. And Daniel and his friends were among the wise men. Somehow they weren't in the room at the time. And so the king commissions Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, to go and begin the execution of the wise men. I imagine maybe they had government-provided housing, so all the wise men were in one neighborhood. And so they're just going in there. And you can just imagine the SWAT team coming door to door, boom, going in and just wiping them out. And apparently, and and some Bible versions make this clearer than others, but the execution of the wise men were already happening 
before Arioch gets to Daniel's door. So let's see what happens when Arioch finds Daniel. Verse 13 of Daniel chapter 2. And the decree went forth that the wise men should be slain, and they sought Daniel and his fellows to be slain. Then Daniel answered with counsel and wisdom to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, which was gone forth to slay the wise men of Babylon. He answered and said to Arioch, the king's captain, Why is the decree so hasty from the king? Then Arioch made the thing known to Daniel. Then Daniel went in and desired of the king that he would give him time and that he would show the king the interpretation. Who is Arioch anyway? What's, what's the king's guard? The king's guard is like the private military escort of the king. It's like the secret service. And he's not just the king's guard, a member. He is the captain of the king's guard. Like this is the guy tasked with protecting the king's body and life and limb himself. He's probably in the king's cabinet. He's probably high up an official. And to rise to that rank, he must have been a hardened soldier accustomed to war and killing and bloodshed. Again, using my sanctified imagination, I see him as this big, muscular, burly guy, tattoos, big beard, probably battle scars, gruff, unlikely to be the kind, tender-hearted, meek and mild type of person. You understand? That's not the captain of the King's Guard, you know, type of personality. And so they're going door to door and they're just killing the wise men, and he comes to Daniel's door. Boom, boom, boom. He opens the door, and Daniel's like, Hey, Arioch, how are you doing? And Arioch says, Daniel, I need to talk. <laughs> and they come in, and they have a little counseling session. That's what it says, isn't it? With wisdom and counsel, he speaks to Arioch. Imagine an FBI agent comes to your door. Or if you want to go back in history, the KGB or the Gestapo. Or maybe, maybe today, in, since it's in the news, maybe it's the Taliban coming to your door. Can you imagine having them sit down, having a conversation with them, and getting them to defy their order? And Arioch not only defies the order and not kill Daniel and his friends, he turns around and lets Daniel go see the king. That's not what captains of king's guards are supposed to do. What is this telling us? Obviously, Daniel and Arioch had a prior relationship before this happened at the door. That, I think, goes without saying. But the deeper point here is just like the, the prince of the eunuchs, Arioch here was a Babylonian that had no common frame of reference. He was not from the same religion. He did not have the same cultural background. But yet Daniel could reach out of his own sphere of influence, his own worldview, to get these Babylonians, hardened pagans, to change their ways. Daniel was greatly beloved by the Babylonians. Daniel was able to win the confidence of people with whom he shared little to no common frame of reference. He was able to operate effectively, interpersonally, outside of his own worldview and moral framework. And most importantly, he was able to influence people to change their behavior. If we are to stand at the end times and call people out of Babylon, we too are going to have to convince people outside of our worldview, outside of our moral framework, and to get them to change their behavior too. Amen? Amen. Let's skip Daniel chapter 3 just because Daniel's not there, but let's go to Daniel chapter 4. Because I think Daniel chapter 4 gets really to the heart of the matter. Why was Daniel able to do this? What is the secret to this genius interpersonal, 
you know, relationship person. I mean, Daniel, this is incredible. In Daniel chapter 4, there's a similar outline of the story as Daniel chapter 2. Nebuchadnezzar has another dream. The wise men still can't interpret it, even though he remembered it this time. And Daniel comes in to help the king. And notice in verse 19, Daniel's response after he hears the dream. Verse 19, Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was astonished for one hour, and his thoughts troubled him. The king spoke and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation thereof trouble thee. Belteshazzar Belteshazzar answered and said, My lord, the dream be to them that hate thee, and the interpretation thereof to thine enemies. And of course, Belteshazzar is the new Babylonian name that was given to Daniel. When he heard the dream, he knew it was not good news for Nebuchadnezzar. And his response was simply, I really wish I didn't have to tell you this. I wish this dream didn't apply to you because this is bad news. Did Daniel care about Nebuchadnezzar? Sure he did, but if, you're, if you've got a cynical side to you like I do, you'd be looking like, well, of course he's going to say that. This is the most powerful man in the universe at this point. Of course he's going to be polite. He's going to be politically correct in what he says. Of course he's going to say that. But wait, what else happens? Daniel proceeds to interpret the dream. He gives interpretation. This is what a dream means. You know, the tree and it was cut down and all the animals. Seven times pass over the, you know, this, uh, the king and all of these things. But then in verse 27, Daniel gives interpretation and then, and then, He goes and he gives the most powerful man in the world unsolicited advice. I'm going to give you a little unsolicited advice right now. And that is if you are called before a very powerful person to, you know, do some task, don't offer unsolicited advice. (laughs) You know, if it's the president of Loma Linda or the president of the United States, just, just go in. Give them what they asked for and just quietly step out. And that's what Daniel could have done. He could have said, this is not a good dream, but I'm going to tell you what it means and I'm out of here. But Daniel didn't do that. Notice what he says in verse 27. Wherefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable unto thee and break off thy sins by righteousness and thine iniquities by showing mercy to the poor, if it may be a lengthening of thy tranquility. Daniel called out the king's sins. He gave a direct appeal, a spiritual appeal of repentance to the most powerful king in the world. And of course, he did it tenderly and with genuine regard. So obviously, on one hand, Daniel was fearless. We see that. On the other hand, we were saying earlier, was this just a cynical, politically correct response? Daniel just saying the right thing to save his skin? Or did he genuinely care about the soul of Nebuchadnezzar? He did, because why would he stick his neck out to give unsolicited advice and call the king to repentance for his sins if he didn't care for the man? Let's pause right here for a moment. And let's just ask the question, who is this King Nebuchadnezzar anyway that Daniel's trying to save? We think of him as sort of almost a cartoon character, right? We think of him from the Bible story books. You know, he's the king that had the image. And, you know, we, we kind of have this mental picture from, you know, Uncle Arthur's Bible stories. But let's wait and let's think about this. Who was Nebuchadnezzar to Daniel? Nebuchadnezzar was the commander-in-chief 
who took over his homeland, destroyed Jerusalem, sacked Solomon's temple, desecrated the vessels, took them back to Babylon and, and commingled them with the you know, idolatrous vessels that he had, probably slaughtered Daniel's family, marched him across the desert, turned him into a eunuch, made him into a slave. If I could put it this way, to use a historical illustration, Nebuchadnezzar to Daniel was like Hitler to the Jews in Europe. I think it could have be, a case could be made that Nebuchadnezzar could feature in the history's Hall of Fame of worst villains. You know, like Nero and Genghis Khan and Stalin and, you know, these guys. I think there could be a case to be made that he w- his name would belong on that list. Nebuchadnezzar was an oppressor. He was a dictator. He was someone who was a cruel man who destroyed entire civilizations. And Daniel did not treat him as such. Daniel's response in making a genuine heartfelt appeal to save Nebuchadnezzar shows me that Daniel saw in Nebuchadnezzar not this foreign, heathen king, dictator, oppressor, horrible, mean person that I hate for the rest of my life, even though that might have been a justified response. Daniel saw in him a child made in the image of God, a sinner who needs to be saved by the grace of Jesus. An individual that he wants to see in heaven. That, my friends, is the secret to Daniel's power. He did not resort to a tribal instinct of saying, you are a bad person because of all the bad stuff you did to me. And all of the people that are like you, all you Babylonians, I hate you too. Daniel did not think that way at all. And it's manifested in the way that he reacted and how he he responded to Nebuchadnezzar. And here's the amazing thing. At the end of Daniel chapter 4, everything that Daniel predicted came to pass. Seven years, Nebuchadnezzar became a wild beast in the field. His, His reason came back to him. And then what happens? He gives a testimony to the Most High God. And we are told that Nebuchadnezzar will be in heaven because of Daniel. Daniel calling, not just come out of her, my people. He called the king of Babylon out of Babylon. (laughs) Talk about a soul winner, amen? But that's not where the story ends. We see the heart of Daniel. He had a heart of loving kindness, of tender regard, viewing each person as an individual made in the image of God, not because of their identity, not because of what they've done in their past. He could forgive like Jesus forgave. And as a result, he saved the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar himself. But of course, the story continues. Daniel chapter 5, Nebuchadnezzar has passed away. His grandson, Belshazzar, is on the throne, and he's really making a mess of things. Medo-Persian army is at the gates. They have besieged the city, and he instead throws a drunken orgy. And so finally, the hand writing on the wall, we know the story. Daniel is finally called in. When Daniel comes in, he gives a rundown of the history of what, everything that happened in Daniel chapter 4, the story of, of Nebuchadnezzar. And he says, Belshazzar, verse 22. Verse 22, let's read it. Nebuchadnezzar, or, I'm sorry, and O thou his son, O Belshazzar, has not humbled thine heart, though thou knewest all this. Daniel 
did not treat Belshazzar in the same way as Nebuchadnezzar. You notice the difference, the contrast. On one hand, with, with Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel had this tender yearning in his voice. Like, if I can just say one thing, O king, if it will make a difference, please let me just say this one thing. Maybe I can help you. But when it comes to Belshazzar, it's fire and brimstone, baby. <laughs> Daniel stands there. He's like, you should have known better, young man. <laughs> and he reads the writing on the wall and he says, guess what? Tonight, your kingdom is over. And if I can say this, Daniel, that night, in Dan chapter 5, he literally gives the message, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. That's literally the message of Daniel chapter 5. And this is the point. We're talking about Daniel's interpers- interpersonal genius and his EQ. What this tells me is that emotional intelligence is not just merely being nice. Emotional intelligence is knowing what to say, when to say, and how to say it. Right? Like he was, he, he, he's basically rehearsing the same story. He's, he's talking to the king, but to one person, he was wise as serpents and harmless as doves. A soft answer turns away wrath. But on the other hand, with Belshazzar, he cries aloud, lifts up his voice like a trumpet, and shows his people his sins. Right? And that is what emotional intelligence is all about, is knowing the difference. Knowing when to have the soft type of answer and when to have the tough love. Because having the emotional intelligence is to know when to rebuke, when to exhort and encourage. But at the end of Daniel chapter 5, we have the transition of power. Okay, So let's read in verse 30. Daniel chapter 5 and verse 30. And in that night was Belshazzar, the king of the Chaldeans, slain. And Darius the Median took the kingdom, being about threescore and two years old. So at this point in the story, Daniel was already, what, third in command or something like that in Babylon. You would expect with a bloody transition of power that we just read about, I mean, they destroy the city, right? You're like, well, that's the end of that. Daniel stood up, went out in a blaze of glory. (laughs) But is that what happened to Daniel? Mm Mm-mm. Chapter 6, verse 1. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 princes, which should be over the whole kingdom. And over these, three presidents, of whom Daniel was first, that the princes might give accounts unto them, then the king should have no damage. Then this Daniel was preferred above the presidents and princes, because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king thought to set him over the whole realm. Then the presidents and princes sought to find occasion against Daniel concerning the kingdom, but they could find none, none occasion nor fault, for as much as he was faithful, neither was there any error or fault in him." Then said these men, we shall not find any occasion against this Daniel, except we find against him concerning the law of his God. I love this story. Because in Daniel chapter 6, we see a cabinet member in a Republican administration promoted to be the vice president of a Democrat president. And you might be thinking, that can never happen. Well, in Daniel chapter 5 and 6, it did. And we might think, oh, that's crazy with the political division today. You don't think that there was political division then? They literally killed all of the outgoing administration. (laughs) Daniel was the third in command in Babylon. Medo-Persia sweeps in, destroys Babylon, and Daniel becomes second in command. 
What in the world? Forgive me, but I must say this. This tells me that Daniel was a nonpartisan actor. Daniel was involved in politics, no way around it, but he was not defined by it. He was defined by principle, by faithfulness to his God, not by party, not by peer pressure, not by popular opinion, and he was greatly beloved both in Babylon and in Medo-Persia. He was able to save souls in Babylon and Medo-Persia. Daniel is an example for us to stand for principle though the heavens fall, regardless of party preference, politics, pressure, peer pressure, whatever it may be. But Daniel chapter 6 tells us several other things. The next, uh, really two main points, okay, in Daniel chapter 6. And, that, and the first point I want to bring out is that no matter how high EQ we might be, no matter how good we are interpersonally, there will always be people that dislike us. Daniel, in Daniel chapter 6, he had a lot of enemies. And he had a lot of enemies simply because he was a good man. Because he did what was right. And he was good at his job. And he had ethics and principle. And here we see that these hooligans in, in government here, they tried to cancel Daniel, to use modern-day parlance. You understand, what, you know, understand what's going on here. They put him under strict surveillance. They bugged his house. They traced his phone. They, had, you know, they hacked his iPhone. They probably knew where he was at all times. They scoured his social media accounts. He surely must have said something inappropriate 10 or 20 years ago. Probably went through his high school yearbooks. Maybe there's some off-color remark he made somewhere that we can, we can nail him on that. Daniel was pure, and they could find nothing. They looked at his bank accounts. Is there anything offshore here? <laughs> is he hiding some stuff using Bitcoin? What is, like, there's got to be some dirt on this guy. And they're like, we can find nothing. And Daniel finally had to be caught because of his faithfulness, because of his faith, and they could not cancel him any other way. And so the second point, part, second point and second part of this story is that in Daniel chapter 6, I don't really believe Daniel to be the main character of the story at all. He's really not the main figure. Because the story, you know, usually the main protagonist, you know, he has some sort of arc. There's a conflict, some resolution. But if you look at the story of Daniel, there, or Daniel chapter 6, there's no drama with Daniel. Literally the whole story in Daniel chapter 6, he just goes about his life doing what he's always done. That's literally what he says. He goes, he continues praying as he did aforetime. That is, there's no drama. So who really is the main character of Daniel chapter 6? It's King Darius. And the whole core of Daniel chapter 6, the whole story, is because Darius loved Daniel. Daniel chapter 6, think about it with me. The whole story kicks off because Darius liked Daniel so much that he promoted him. That's what stirs up the jealousy of all of these other guys. And Darius signs this law, and then he realizes, oh, I knew there was something suspicious. 
These guys are all going after Daniel. He knew it immediately. The story tells us. And he works until the setting of the sun to try to deliver his friend. The conflict in the whole story revolves around Darius and his relationship with Daniel. And at the end of the day, Darius, because he cannot change the law of the Medes of Persians, he trudges out to the lion's den with Daniel. What king would do that to a political prisoner? And at the gate of the lion's den, Darius says to Daniel, your king, whom you serve continually, he will deliver you. How about that? You think he heard a few things about the Most High God from Daniel prior to that? And then he goes home that night. He won't eat. No appetite. I don't want to hear the music. Not in the mood for it. Couldn't sleep all night. Tossing and turning. Why? Because Daniel was greatly beloved by Darius. Early in the morning, at the crack of dawn, Darius gets up and he runs back to the lion's den. That, that mustard seed faith that Daniel probably helped plant there, right? It awakens. He's like, you know, Daniel's God has done some amazing things for him before. Maybe he worked a miracle again. He runs back and he calls out, Daniel, Daniel, is the God whom you serve able to deliver you? And Daniel, of course, we know the story. Hallelujah, he's alive. And at the end of Daniel chapter 6, we see again a testimony from the heathen king, this time the Medo-Persian king, testifying about the Most High God. I don't have 100% confirmation. I don't believe the spirit of prophecy makes this clear. But I would not be surprised if Darius too was converted by Daniel. Because that's what Daniel does. <laughs> the message that God's people are to give at the end of time is that Babylon is fallen, is fallen. And come out of her, my people. Daniel gives us the picture of someone who did exactly that. And there's a statement in Ministry of Healing, page 470, that I think is appropriate. The strongest argument in favor of the gospel, you know the rest of it, is a loving and lovable Christian. I've read this statement many times, and I've always associated my mental picture, right, the, the sanctified imagination, where you think of someone just warm and soft and squishy, you know, just sort of, <laughs> Sort of this syrupy, sweet person, right? Like, oh, you got this, right? Like, you can do it. Like, just this self-help cheerleader. Like, no judgment, just accepting, just warm, and just embrace you for who you are. Now, I'm not saying those are bad traits, but I don't think that's a complete picture. When I look at, when I read this statement now, a loving and lovable Christian, and marry that, the strongest argument how about, like, I think a, strong, a pretty strong argument would be the argument that saved the king of Babylon, right? Loving and lovable Christian. In my mind's eye now, that's Daniel. And at the end of time, to call souls out of Babylon, you think we need to give the strongest argument in favor of Christianity? That means it's not just the words that come out of our mouth. It's not just the defined message that we are given, as important as that is, but it is the messenger ourselves. You see, calling people out of Babylon consists not only of fiery sermons and appeal from the pulpit, although it will surely include some of that. Calling people out of Babylon does not consist merely of rebuking of sin, 
or proclaiming the righteousness of the law and of God and pointing to a coming judgment, although it must include some of that. Calling people out of Babylon does not even consist only of living out our faithful lives in private, although it must include that. What does, it, what does it involve? It involves coming close to the people, mingling with men as one who desired their good, showing our sympathy for them, ministering to their needs, winning their confidence in order to bid them to follow Christ. We've all heard that statement before. Christ's method alone will give true success in reaching the people. And frequently we associate this with programs and activities and dates on the calendar, and things that we do as opposed to the type of people we ought to be. People of high emotional intelligence, people of high relational skill. And when we think about the completeness of Christian character, let us not be so myopic to think it is merely knowing the truth, the, 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 the ones and zeros, the binary of the truth, and not just of keeping the law in the checklist type of sense. It's not, that's not enough. It is involving our ability to reach out of our comfort zone, out of our worldview, out of our moral framework into people that have nothing in common with us to, to be able to speak the love of Jesus into their lives. So how is it going with us in this regard? That horrible boss that we talked about earlier, What does he think about us? Do we have any influence? Have we spoken anything into his life that might take root and grow? What does our Facebook and Twitter feed look like? If we were caught in Daniel's position in Daniel chapter 6, are they going to be able to dig up dirt on us? Maybe to bring it even a little bit closer to home... How do we relate with those people with whom we disagree? Maybe those friends or the family members that we found out voted differently than us. Hmm. Or maybe even those who have differing opinions on a vaccine. Yeah, I actually said that. How many of the people we deem our enemies will be in heaven because of our influence? That's a tough one. But I know what Daniel's going to say. Plenty. (laughs) The everlasting gospel is not merely about the content of the gospel message, as important as that may be. But it's also the manifestation of that gospel in the life of the messenger. And that manifestation, in perhaps the highest form, is when we are able to win souls out of Babylon. Men and women who have nothing in common with us. Men and women like Nebuchadnezzar, or Darius, or Arioch, or the prince of the eunuchs. And the mission that God has given to us is to save them too. So in conclusion, our very last verse. In Daniel chapter 12, the very last verse in the last chapter of Daniel... Daniel chapter 12, verse 13. And we will conclude here. Daniel chapter 12 and verse 13.
But go thou thy way, Daniel, till the end be, for thou shalt rest and stand in thy lot at the end of the days. I believe this statement has a primary application to Daniel himself, in which he will stand in the judgment and he will receive the reward for his works, his righteous life. Yes, but I believe there is another application to this. And that is, at the end of days, God is going to have people like Daniel who will stand in a similar place and position like Daniel in Babylon, but not of Babylon, declaring that Babylon is fallen and calling people out of Babylon. And who is going to stand in that lot today? That's the closing message of the last verse of Daniel. And now I believe, looking at the life of Daniel and his interactions with people, we have a slightly better idea of what that entails, the challenge that it entails. And so the simple appeal this morning is how many of us want to accept that challenge? To say, Lord, I am not anything like Daniel, but I'm willing to be made like him. I'm willing to be made in the image of Jesus because, to be honest, Daniel was merely reflecting the God whom he served. And so how many of us want to say, Lord, help me to fulfill this mission at the end of time. Let me see your hands. God bless you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, may we, when our names come up in the judgment, be deemed your greatly beloved. And in the meantime, while we live on this earth, near the end of earth's history, in a time of moral confusion, may we be able to stand like Daniel in his lot, declaring the truth with clarity, but just as importantly, to be able to reach out of ourselves to reach people where they are, to minister to their needs, to win their confidence, to show our sympathy for them, and to lead them to Jesus. And Father, may there be stars in our crowns one day who represent people that we have helped to save by your grace, People in Babylon, people who do not know you, people with whom we have little in common, may we be able to accomplish that work by your grace, humbly, with your indwelling spirit. And may we be ready for you when you come. And we pray that we can help hasten that day. Guide us and bless us the remainder of the Sabbath now, we ask and commit these things to your care. We pray in Jesus' name. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.